When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, recorded live at the 2023 conference, poet and memoirist Javier Zamora talks to legendary bookseller Mitchell Kaplan about his memoir Solito, which chronicles his experiences traveling from El Salvador to the United States by himself when he was only nine years old. There's a very good reason why Solito became a bestseller and was one of the standout books of 2022. It's a harrowing, beautiful, heartbreaking, and important book. Zamora's memoir is told in the voice of his nine-year-old self. As, led by a paid coyote, he joins a group of adults and children moving north on a trip that's supposed to last two weeks, but ends up lasting almost two months. Javier Zamora writes and speaks like someone who believes he can never afford to forget that journey or the experience on the other side in America of growing up undocumented. You won't be able to forget it either, I promise you. And that is the power of great literature. So every once in a while, a book comes along that alters the discourse. Its voice is so true, so clear, and so undeniable. Solito by Javier Zamora is just such a book. I dare anyone to read its 381 pages and not be moved, and also not be moved to outrage. Outrage at just how wrong it is that Javier had to endure what he had to, also knowing that his journey is a journey that continues to be taken today by countless others. And that instead of empathy that we all should have, we seem to be driven by those who at every chance weaponize the plight of the migrant for political gain. So Lito is just now coming out in paperback. This is the bookseller in me. It's gracing all the bestseller lists. It won the LA Times Christopher Isherwood Prize for autobiography, and it was the winner of the American Library Association Alex Award. So please, please give a warm welcome to Javier Zamora. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So it's been a whirlwind year, huh? Yeah, it's been, it's been wild. It's been great, though. We met uh, almost when the book first came out, I think, almost a year ago. Yeah. And I can't imagine that anyone at this point doesn't really know the outline of the story you tell in Salido. But just in case there's a few who don't, can you tell us about that nine-week odyssey you took and some of the things that led up to forcing you to take that? So let's see. El Salvador had a civil war from 1980 to 1992. 
My parents had me when they were just 19 or 18. Uh, they were born in 1971. Because of the war, my dad had to flee in 1991 when I was just one years old. My mom left in 1995 in technical peacetime, but it wasn't really. And they left telling me that they were going to return, like every immigrant thinks they are. But then la situacion, the situation in my country, didn't get better. And by 1997, they started telling me, you're soon going to be with us. And we tried uh, multiple ways to get me here. And at the end of that equation, my parents thought that the safest way for me to be with them would be to use the same uh, coyote that my mom used because she made it here in two weeks. And if I could use the word uh, safe, she was relatively safe um, all the way here. And that man was with her all the way. So they expected the same thing. And so the book begins a few weeks before April 6, 1999, which is the day that I leave my small coastal town. Now it's a town. It was more a village back then. And the book accompanies me all the way until June 11th, 1999, when, you know, I'm not spoiling anything, I make it. And, I, and I'm reunited with, with my parents. But a lot of things happen in between. The trip was supposed to be two weeks. It ends up being almost two months. And the coyote, Don Dago, um, leaves the group of seven of us um, and runs away with another immigrant. I suppose that he falls in love and they go together. And then the rest of us, who I call the six, have to figure out how to make it from another small coastal village called Ocos, Guatemala, and make it all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and I'll leave it at that. What's beautiful about this, I think, as well, is that it's written in your voice. And the other thing that I found really compelling was the story before you left. Can you describe a little bit about after your mother left and what your life was like in El Salvador as you a know, young boy? You know, from a writer's perspective, that was perhaps the hardest to edit because we're talking about nine years that I reduced, I think, to 40 pages. And my life before I left was, I don't know, I will say it, um, but I don't think children in my country have the privilege of having the childhood that I did. El Salvador becomes a country in 1821. And from 1821 up until 1992, we are under a military junta, or like it's always a military man who rules the country. So we had no democracy. 1992, quote unquote, we get a president. And that's when I come of age. Like I don't remember anything before my third birthday. Um, but from 1993 till 1999 is perhaps the safest time in my young country's history. And because of that, I could go and pick a mango like three doors down. I could, I grew up with cornfields in the back, uh, beans, squash, three different types of pineapples, like five different types of bananas. It was like Whole Foods in my backyard. Uh, we didn't have running water. I grew up with black and white TV. 
a typewriter was like great technology back then. And because of those things, I had to entertain myself in my backyard. And I believe that is the reason why when you throw this nine-year-old on this huge 3,000-mile trek, my coping mechanism became nature. Like, I was around nature all the time. If you want to Google it, our national bird is a motmot. And there were multiple motmots and aracaris. If you're a birder, if you can tell I'm a birder now, also a coping mechanism. But that was my idyllic, amazing childhood that I had to leave behind. How did you get to the place where you could reclaim that nine-year-old you and then start writing this memoir, in a sense? Uh, I think anger was a big part of it. I started writing poetry as an 18-year-old, 17. And what happened when I was 17 was that I found out that being undocumented in Marin County, of all counties in the United States, was going to be difficult for me. You know, I couldn't get a driver's license. I couldn't apply to FAFSA. I couldn't apply to the things in the world that I thought this country could provide, to all of the things. And we didn't have enough money for a therapist, so poetry became my outlet. And poetry became the thing where I could process. And when you are marginalized in this country, there's a lot of anger that you have to unpack. And all of that I threw onto the page. And then the book comes out in 2017. And during that administration, And ironically, it is because of the book and how well it did that I am a path opens up for me for citizenship. And that is the EB1 or the Einstein visa. And I have this extraordinary abilities visa. And I find myself going from Stanford to Harvard, which is like a reason why I got the visa. And yet, at the peak of privilege... I am so unhappy. It's like, imagine you're training for a marathon and you get to the finish line and then you're like, what, that was it? You know, what, what, what is my prize? What do I have now? And that, I fell into a deep, I guess what you call it, depression. And at the same time, there was 24-7 coverage of the child, the migrants at the border crisis, which to me, as an unaccompanied child myself who immigrated in 1999 with thousands of others that had also done it in the 80s and the 90s, it frustrated me to see how the media and politicians were talking about us. And then to see other non-immigrants write books, write films that reduced us to the worst moments of our lives, be it a picture, be it a write-up in which all you know is this person's trauma, that really angered me. And I was like, there needs to be something else that, to use a cartoonish metaphor, imagine like Wiley e. Coyote is flattened on the side of the road. You needed something else to pump air into that 3D figure. And I hope that this book and other works by other immigrants who have actually lived what we're talking about makes a difference and paints us in a more human way. Two things. You, you said somewhere that I read that you had never stopped to look 
at that nine-year-old self or honor him for who he really is, that he was a superhero. So that was part of the whole process, was getting to be able to honor him, I assume. Starting from, from a historical point of view, I'm a history major, um, Latin American history, concentrated on the Salvadoran Civil War. But from a historical point of view, we didn't even have a word to talk about undocumented people. You know, the New York Times is back again using the I word, not to my liking. Uh, you should never use that word. We are undocumented. And when you grow up listening to the I word, when you grow up in California, who now people think is a liberal haven, but I got there right after Gray Davis, and they try to pass like a very anti-immigrant bill. But I make it right after that. And when a young kid who has gone through trauma keeps getting all these labels thrown at him, and when even teachers, principals, friends of families don't know how to talk about the trauma that not only the child, but that the parent has gone through, and when politicians begin to use us as pawns and they tell you that all we are are these negative connotations, that does something to you. And eventually, you begin to believe it. And when you begin to believe it, you think less of yourself. And that is what I'm still struggling with. I, I think I have a better hold of it now after writing this book. But it's ironic how those labels stop you from healing. All these words and all these sentiments and all these news and the news cycles and all these images actually do a disservice to those of us who are actually living and have lived through it. To use another metaphor, it's like all the times that somebody has said something mean about immigrants, not even about myself, but just immigrants in general, it's like a sticker is on my skin. And there's a shit ton of stickers all over my body. And it takes therapy to like peel a few and more and more and more. And so if you can do anything, try to look at us like human beings. We're just normal. You know, I even hate the A numbers that I still have to use. The A stands for alien. We're not fucking aliens. You know, just like the way and the language in which this government and how they talk about us, it's so dehumanizing. And just be aware that every immigrant, every single one of us, has got a huge mountain to climb in order to even begin to believe in healing. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think what you do so masterfully is you pinpoint the trauma because your life before that was not traumatic. I mean, in El Salvador, you did have that period where you could pick mangoes. and I mean, you didn't have your parents with you, but you had a very loving family that you were living with. And you were kind of a superstar kid. You were an academic, you know, you were winning those awards in school. And so then to see what the trauma of that passing and then being in the States, how that changed you, for a reader, is so incredibly stark. I would say that it's not like an external trauma, but it is a trauma if a child is left by their parents. You know, there's this 10-point uh, scale, uh, if you remember, but there are like 10 questions that you have to like answer. If you answer yes to four of those, you have a high number in the scale, and it's about children who get left by their parents. 
And both of my parents left me, and I took this test, and I answered yes to nine of the 10 questions. And so even before I go into this very traumatic, very obviously traumatic experience that I describe in Solito, there was an initial trauma that occurred my, yeah, that I'm carrying, which is how, and this blew my mind because also I'm a history major, but then once I got into healing and I, like there's something going on here, I started reading psychology books, which I always ignored. But to me, it didn't make sense how this kid keeps winning like the valedictorian, yet that kid didn't know how to tie his shoes. And he wasn't potty trained, you know? And I made a point of like focusing on that because that was one of those moments like, oh, I do have trauma that precedes this other big T capital, obvious trauma of immigrating here. My mom left me when she was teaching me how to tie my shoes and when she was potty training me. When you don't have power, as children don't, the only power that you do have is the power of no. If you see a child like refusing to do something, they are using the one thing that they can do which is tell you no and cry. And for me, I refused any other adult. I refused them teaching me how to do those two very basic things. And this is how I know that there is like a precursor. It's like layers. You know, we all don't just suffer one sort of trauma. You know, it's like layer on top of layer on top of layer, we make, which makes the whole thing harder to like dig up. What did it mean to you when you got that blurb from Sandra Cisneros? who says, I have waited decades for a memoir like Solito. What do you think she meant by that? And what, how did that make you feel? Well, <laughs> in the writing industry, there was this huge backlash towards a certain book. And we're in an era, I think, not only in publishing, but across the board, when those who have lived what they're describing, it is our time to write those things and to tell others about it. Because for a long time, others have been telling our stories. I think that's what she meant. You've got some exciting things coming up. You have your one-year wedding anniversary, which is very exciting. And you told me backstage that soon you'll be applying for citizenship as well. What has this last year been like in terms of all that? <laughs> it's been a wild ride. There are levels of uncertainty. Even, I hope that you walk away knowing that even me, with the CV and me being on stage, what I describe in the book is considered a crime. And so even going up for citizenship is not a complete guarantee. And how fucked up this system is, is that it's not up to a whole group of people. It's literally up to that one person who is going to interview me. That one person has all the power in the world to, if they have a bad day, to not give me citizenship. And that is what, even through this level of privilege of having this type of green card, that's what we always have to live with. There's that. Going back to my country is a great blessing. And also... If you read the news, there's something happening there as well. It's great to 
be up here and to have people listen to you. But it's also important to acknowledge the realities of others that are like me. And I hope that my life and opportunities like these are not the only ones, not only for me, but there are others like me who are behind me. And that literally I could open doors to come onto the stage. And so you can hear all of our stories, not only the stories that speak about our traumas, but all of our stories. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. Like Javier, our hope at Beyond the Page is to bring onto the stage other stories of trauma, courage, love, and hope. To listen to this talk unedited, including the audience Q&A with Javier Zamora, please visit the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. And to catch new episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and thanks for listening.